Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are talking about Scream 2 from 1997, directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson, starring Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, and Jada Pinkett Smith. And in this film, Sidney Prescott's attempt to return to a normal life is interrupted by a series of copycat murders on her college campus. If you're new to the show, we're going to discuss some spoiler-free information on the movie for the first 15 or 20 minutes, but then after that, we'll do a little musical interlude and transition into spoiler mode. We'll walk through the plot in detail and review the film, so if you haven't seen the movie yet, you can hang on for the first 15 or 20 minutes here, and then you'll want to duck out and go watch this. And for the past couple of years, we've been covering sequels exclusively in the month of September, so... We would like to welcome you back to yet another sequel September, but we're not sure if we'll do sequels all month long because we've got some big movies coming up that may interrupt the flow of things. Candyman's coming out. It may have even been released already by the time you hear this. A new James Wan film, Malignant, is coming out, so we might pepper in a couple of non-sequels this month. Uh, What do you think of that plan, Ashvin? I like that idea. A little mix of uh, some sequels, some originals. Yeah, we'll go a little softer on it this month. Sounds good. And I'd like to, uh, considering Scream 5 coming out in January, I'd like to maybe get to Scream 3 and 4 in the next few months, too. So so we'll get more sequels down the road. Trying to knock out the franchise? I'd like to knock out the franchise. I don't know if I've ever seen 3. Mm, yeah. I feel like it's going to be one of those moments where I see it and instantly remember it or <laughs> or not. Yeah, I know. I, I feel like I get a little blurry after 2. Uh, maybe I mix like 3 and 4 in my head. I didn't see Scream 4 until recently. I saw that a couple years ago. Oh, okay, okay. And that was like, yeah. that came out, what, like f- 10 years ago now? Uh, Yeah, I think it was twenty. It was 2011. Okay, wow. When was the last time you saw Scream 2, do you know? Um, No, it would have been like a long time ago, but I feel like I watching it, like a lot of it felt familiar and I remember the plot quite a bit. But what, what about you? Yeah, same. The last time, I'm pretty sure the last time I saw it was 24 years ago in the theater in December of 1997. Was that also the first time you saw it? Yeah, I, I think I've only seen it once. Oh, okay, okay, wow, impressive. So, did it feel uh, familiar to you, or did, was it, it was like watching it from like the start again? It did feel familiar, but I I forgot who the killers were until like near the end. Yeah, that's great. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So it was still fun. The mystery element still uh, felt felt almost just as good as the first time through. Nice, nice. I, I think that's like the best part of this franchise is trying to guess who the killer or the killers are. Do you think that this movie leaned in harder to the whodunit element than the first one did? I think so, because uh, the first one had the element of surprise, and then going to this one, like you, you kind of know it's like two people, but like which two people is it? Uh, so yeah, I, I think it played up like the detective angle a lot more than uh, the first one. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, spoiler alert that it's two people, gosh. Oh man, <laughs> didn't we say? Oh, uh, oh yeah, or or multiple people, right? Could it could have been four? Who knows? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I I forget that about three and four. Like, uh, d- yeah, do do you remember who the killers are in those ones by any chance? No, and I I, I don't even know if I've seen three. So shut your mouth about it. Okay, <laughs> you've done enough. Um, the budget was twenty four million. The box office was one hundred and seventy three million. Almost exactly the same as the box office pull from the first film. It was 683000 less than the original Scream. Mm-hmm. Pretty impressive. 
yeah yeah pretty awesome and uh, a slightly bigger budget though right than the original one yeah yeah the budget for scream 2 was 24 million and the budget for the original was 15 million okay yeah no, uh, it's all, still a pretty good return yeah yeah scream 2 was number 17 at the domestic box office for 1997 and guess what number 18 was oh what the 1997 yeah blair witch scream what the first one because it was released so late in december of the prior year that yeah. it was still going strong in january oh my god wow That's isn't incredible. that cool yeah scream was number 17 and or scream was number 18 and scream 2 was number 17 at the domestic box office in 1997 that's crazy damn yeah blair witch was 1999 oh yeah okay that's that's incredible man what what a like a successful franchise isn't that great yeah good for scream and uh, that turnaround is is super quick too yeah very fast um and there's a reason for that kevin williamson when he was trying to sell his original script included a five-page outline of a possible sequel or sequels to entice buyers with the fact that they could make a franchise out of this um so when it was clear within the first like week or two in the theater for Scream 1, that Dimension had success on their hands with Scream, they started work on the sequel Yeah, while it was still in the theater. And I, I got the impression that Wes Craven, Nev Campbell, that when they signed their contract for Scream 1, it included the idea that they'd be back for like a sequel. Yeah, I believe it did. That's, yeah. Yeah, and then Scream 3 was released uh, three years later in 2000. Scream 4 was released 11 years after that in 2011. And here we go with scream five or scream whatever you want to call it coming out in 2021 no january of 2022 excuse me um yeah i'm excited for that and this movie had a rotten tomatoes critic score of 81 percent and a user score of only 57 oh wow that's a big difference yeah, yeah the original had 79 percent for both critics and users hmm that's a that's a little bit lower than I would have thought. I thought like the original was like pretty widely acclaimed. Yeah, I feel like it's so beloved, but uh, it's got its critics. Hmm. Okay. Um, the soundtrack of Scream Two reached number fifty on the Billboard Two Hundred uh, with some songs that feel very dated right now. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I know any of these songs. Do you? I remember Suburban Life by the Cottonmouth Kings. I was pretty into that song. It, oh, okay. You know, I almost had a vague memory of like having this soundtrack or maybe it was like I Napstered it or something based on yeah. what time period this was released. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at the artists, it's like uh, all the big artists like uh, Dave Matthews, Everclear, uh, oh, Sugar Ray. Collective yeah. It was Soul. really a slice of life in 1997. Master P. Yeah. Master P. <laughs> had a <right>? song <laughs> called Scream with Silk the Shocker. Oh, they played during the credits. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Do you remember Me First and the Gimme Gimmies? Oh, yeah. I remember that band. <laughs> yeah. yeah they, they had a song in the credits, I think, as well. Wow. I was a big fan of that band, and I, I am ashamed. <laughs> uh, I don't think I ever heard a song by them. That's that's impressive. Yeah. They just covered a bunch of old classic songs in, in punk rock form. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, I never pegged you for a punk rock uh, fan. I like this weird version of pop punk and emo back in that time period, like late nineties, early two thousands. Um, does like fallout boy fall into that? Uh, by the time fallout boy came around, I was like, I'm over this. Okay. Does... But like newfound glory, taking oh. back Sunday, brand new. Wow. Okay. Great. Yeah. I stand by brand new though. They were great. 
yeah I, I it sounds like they had an album or two that are worth listening to yeah yeah they really did if you ever like break up with somebody uh <laughs> your favorite weapon is is the album to go to all right i'll keep that on hand yeah uh anyway there is all sorts of information about there on the script of this movie i wasn't totally sure what to believe but a version of the script leaked to the public and it's reported some places that they had to then change everything up because of the leak. But Williamson, Kevin Williamson went on to claim years later, that was a dummy draft that was purposely leaked online because we didn't want anybody to like catch on to what was happening. Mm -hmm. Did you read much about this? I did. Uh, I can't tell. Do you, do you believe that? Do you buy that story? Um, I don't know. I don't know why you would purposely leak something online. Yeah. I, I don't know if he purposely leaked it or he assumed that it would get leaked and that way like had a dummy script. Uh, so, so it's like, like to act as a decoy. But um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, that that's that's like some next level thinking. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, they were really guarded about the script and even the performers didn't really know what was going to happen until the last minute. So mm -hmm. I guess I could believe it. I could okay. believe that they purposely leaked it. I could also believe what you're saying and that there were multiple versions of the script, either just through the process of drafting scripts or to throw people off. Mm -hmm. um, and one of those was, was leaked unintentionally. Yeah. I, I was trying to, I, I, were you able to find uh, like how the ending for the leaked one might've been different from, it sounded like he had a few versions of the ending of this one that had like different people as the killer. Yeah, he did. He did. But I won't mention that now because we're not, we're not past we're the not... Uh, spoiler mark yet. Oh, sure. Sure. Okay. I actually can't remember if I even wrote it down because I just got so confused about all the different versions of that story that are out there. Yeah. It's a little confusing. Uh, special makeup effects done by the KNBEFX group. Are we at a point where you can name one of those names yet? Uh, of the KFX? Yeah, of the KNB. Oh, KNB. Um, is there a Kevin? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hope you know what the FX stands for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there a Kevin in there? Uh, no, there's not. <laughs> They're the last names. Oh, damn. Uh, are you trying to tie them to another movie? No, I mean, they've worked on a lot of movies. We we mentioned KNB EFX Group a lot, and it's named after Kurtzman, Nicotero, and Berger. Damn it. They couldn't go by the first names? <laughs> could have sworn they would have been a Kevin. Then. <laughs> uh, R-G-H, I think that would be. Oh, okay. That would have been wrong with that. That would have been pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, that threw me off. Um, do you have any other background info on this movie before we get to the Ohio connection? Oh, Marco Beltrami. Uh, we oh, we yeah, like to score, score a lot. Yeah, and and I think we liked his stuff recently in the Quiet Place too. He he seems like a big name on the on the music side. He really is. He's he's very prolific, and he did the yep. first one as well. Yeah, very diverse. Uh. I mean the cast here like basically every big actor in the 90s like for like those three years was in this film yeah right not only did you get all the original people who were still alive from the first movie to come back but you had Jada Pinkett Smith Sarah Michelle Gellar uh Jerry O'Connell mm -hmm. 
Who else um, was really big that was in this? I feel like there was one more big name. Uh, Lee Schreiber. Well, I guess he was in the first one. Uh, Timothy yeah. Oliphant. Timothy that... Oliphant. Yeah, he wasn't that big, was he? No, no. I, I guess, yeah. I, but then he, I guess he went on to become a lot bigger. And then, um, oh, that uh, person from uh, Arrested Development, Portia. Oh, yeah. Portia de Rossi was in this. And then the yeah. other woman, I can't remember her name. Oh, yeah, who yeah. Who was the sorority sister. The other sorority sister. Uh, I think Rebecca Gayhart. There you go, Rebecca Gayhart. Yeah, Tori Spelling was in it. Luke Wilson was in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those were great cameos. And, and Tori Spelling played Nev Campbell in the t- in the movie that they made based on the Woodsboro murders. Right. Um, and that was a throwback to the first Scream. And she was like, with my luck, they'll probably get Tori Spelling to play me in the movie. And Tori Spelling was game. And she came yeah. and she did that. That was awesome. That was so Pretty cool rad. <laughs> I liked Luke Wilson as Billy too. He was just like a comedic take on the broodingness of Billy. Yeah, yeah, it was hilarious. They're like really making fun of uh, the first scream. That one. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, this one again was meta, but kind of next level meta. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of making fun of the franchise itself. Yeah. Um, ooh, uh, you know what? There's another big name in this, and Alex mentions it in the Ohio Connection. Heather Graham. There you go. Oh yeah, I like her a lot. She's great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was just surprised that that cast. Uh, that was a, a, a good. Uh, like I, I can't imagine uh, how, you, how you get all those people on, on the same film. I think that Scream really proved that horror could be popular, and so a bunch of people were like, "Yeah, I guess sure, I'll do it." Whereas yeah. normally it, it may have been hard in the '90s to get people like this in a horror movie. Although not right. Jada Pinkett Smith, who was in Demon Knight. Oh right, right. Yeah, this is like a. Yeah, I, right. Uh, this I, I wonder if this is like her second horror film then. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. She may have been in some other stuff too. Okay. All right. Are you ready for the Ohio Connection? Yeah, let's hear it. All right. I've teased it enough. Our friend Alex connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. If you're in the Cleveland area, stop by Jukebox Bar and Restaurant owned by Alex. They've got great pierogi, great beer selection. Go hang out on their patio. And Alex says, Scream 2... It's a 1997 slasher film, sequel directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. Devotees, how do you say that? Devotees? Devotees? (laughs) (laughs) Devotees will recall from prior Ohio connections that Wes Craven was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and that the film is set in Ohio at the fictional Windsor College. And perhaps even that actress Heather Graham, who makes an early early cameo, also starred in the Parker Poser, Parker Posey comedy The O in Ohio. But what you probably didn't know was that multi-talented musician D'Angelo recorded a cover of the Prince song She's Always in My Hair for the Scream 2 soundtrack. This was the first time he contributed a cover to a movie soundtrack, the second being a year later on the Down in the Delta soundtrack where he covered Heaven Must Be Like This by the Ohio Players, a funk group from the 1970s formed in Dayton, Ohio. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that'll please the Ohio Players devotees. Yeah. Devotees. Devotees. That's how you said it, Devotees. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Uh, oh, yeah, D'Angelo, that's, that's a name I haven't heard in a while. Um, what what happened to the day of like these kind of crazy epic soundtracks for movies? Right? I was thinking that. I, I had a note in this movie, like, do movies even date themselves anymore with these super um, like popular, trendy songs and artists in them anymore? Right, yeah. I don't think so. Well, but then we watched Freaky, and I thought maybe Freaky did that. 
did Freaky... I don't know enough about modern music to know if Freaky did that or not. It's the sad state of affairs. Yeah, I just feel like when you look up these movies from like the 90s and stuff, there's a whole paragraph or like section on like the soundtrack track listing. And new movies like rarely have that. You basically just have like a composer or something that's doing all the music for it. Like how often are like top artists now like contributing songs to soundtracks for movies? I think there are certainly still movies that have great soundtracks, but I think they're more likely now to dig deeper into the past and take songs from all time periods or reaching into a specific period. I think what we see a lot now is movies set in a specific time period with the songs from that time period. Oh, sure, Um, sure. But certain directors too, like a Quentin Tarantino movie might have a specific soundtrack, a Rob Zombie movie or... um, like a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. Yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy. But it seems they pull from different generations and they try to be a little, make it, I feel like they make themselves a little less dated by doing so. Sure. Yeah. That kind of gives them a classic feel versus like here are all the bands that were popular for these two years. Yeah, man. I mean, when you watch a 90s movie, it is just so 90s. Yeah. So 90s. <laughs> they really thought that was like the bee's knees. <laughs> I mean, you can tell when you're watching an 80s movie or a 70s movie as well, but there's just something about the 90s. It's yeah, very, it's, very much its own thing. That's what I like about the 90s. I feel like they uh, disregard every decade that came before that, and it's all about like all in on the 90s. They were so confident in what was cool, and <laughs> it just yeah. all looks so stupid now. Yeah, exactly. I blame I blame the Y2K conspiracies. People thought the world was going to end, so uh, we weren't thinking about the longevity of some of those styles. Right, right. Limp Bizkit will be cool forever. Yeah, exactly. The world's going to end with Limp Bizkit on top. (laughs) All right, man. Well, are you ready to walk through the plot, spoil some stuff, and review the film? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. You know what, man, though? My wife and I actually have dinner reservations tonight. Do you mind if I call you when we get back and we can pick up where we left off here? Sure. Sounds good. All right, cool. I'm actually kind of in the doghouse with my wife right now, so wish me luck. Okay, good luck, man. Yeah, I, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. We'll, we'll nice. see what I can do here. All right, I'll, I'll call you soon. All right. All right, bye. Bye. Hey, buddy, I'm back. Hey, how did the dinner go? You know, I really thought things were going well. I was on the upswing. We went to this really fancy restaurant, and I got up and started singing I Think I Love You to her right in the middle of the restaurant. It was this whole big thing. I got super into it. I was standing on tables just singing my heart out. Mm-hmm. And when I finally finished and turned to see her reaction, she was gone. Oh, man. <laughs> Actually, the entire <laughs> restaurant was gone. Everybody just left. Everyone just cleared out of there? They hated it. <laughs> oh man yeah that's, i mean <laughs> scream 2 really had me fooled i know i thought that was like guaranteed success that's <laughs> art thought <laughs> uh, they're worried about art imitating life in these movies but it didn't turn out the way they thought it would <laughs> oh man these i didn't kill anybody but i thought that singing that song in public would work i know i know we've been lied to man that's that that's just terrible. felt like such uh like a bowing to the trends of the time and like trying to be like she's all that or something is that what happens in she's all that um i don't know if that specific scene happens but i'm using she's all that 
as a proxy to represent that whole romantic comedy craze of the 90s. 10 Things I Hate About You has a scene like that. Yeah, I think there's a scene. What's that movie with Cameron Diaz where she's getting married uh, and Jennifer Lopez is pissed off about it? Uh, I don't know if I saw that one. Uh, My Best Friend's Wedding or something? My Best Friend's Wedding, that sounds familiar. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, another one where, yeah, you're right. There were like a lot of movies where like people would just break into song as like a big romantic gesture. I could gesture. (laughs) Gesture. (laughs) I guess people were really gesture devotees in the 90s. (laughs) They were. (laughs) Um, I could see the Weinsteins being like, hey, uh, musical numbers are popular where like the guy sings to the girl. We got to do that. Do it in this movie. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. This one felt a lot more awkward than those other ones, though. It did. Jerry O'Connell is a horrible singer. Yeah, yeah. And and maybe a bad actor, too. Not a great actor. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I can't help but think of him as Trip McNeely from Can't Hardly Wait. Oh, I didn't know he was in that movie. Yeah, yeah. He's like the football player or something? Yeah, like the the football player who was a big deal from like the last class that graduated last year or something. Ah, of course. Yep. Anyway, we're talking about Scream 2 here, people. And this movie begins with two characters, uh, Maureen, played at, played by Jada Pinkett Smith, and Phil, played by Omar Epps. That's an actor we left out when we were naming big 90s actors. They are attending a screening of the film Stab, which is a movie based on the Woodsboro Massacre, the real-life events that unfolded in the first installment of this franchise, Scream. And the event is swarming with moviegoers dressed as Ghostface, carrying fake knives and Phil they're in the movie and Phil excuses himself to go to the bathroom while he's in there he hears something in the stall next to him and while he's peeing he he like before he starts peeing he puts his ear to the stall the stall wall to hear the whispering in the stall next to him and he gets stabbed in the head through the stall wall by someone dressed as Ghostface. what do you think that stall was made out of man oh man for a knife to go through it (laughs) like paper yeah. <laughs> yeah, something pretty cheap. And Ghostface then returns to Phil's seat, and Maureen, Jada Paquette, who's sitting there, assumes that it's Phil trying to scare her with his Ghostface mask. But Ghostface ultimately stabs her in the stomach. She stumbles into the aisle. He's following her, stabbing her multiple times. Either nobody in the crowd sees it, or if they do, they just assume it's part of the stunts and the charades going on in the theater. Until Maureen walks up in front of the movie screen, collapses, and dies. What did you think of this intro scene? You know, I, I thought it was pretty smart. I mean, Scream, uh, the original, we talked about pretty meta, like calling out other scary movies. And this one right away is kind of just referencing itself, which I thought was a bold move. Like you're watching uh, a movie of part one, basically, and like they had basically the Drew Barrymore look like in there and then even like what Maureen's like yelling at the screen like uh it looks like she's about to get it you got to get out of there it like kind of comes full circle and it's like her getting stabbed and killed so it, it just seemed like so many layers going on here between uh you know horror movie tropes making fun of part one and then like a character saying the dialogue that like you're kind of like yelling at them uh to do so I, I thought it was really cool what, what did you think I would agree with what you said I think the setup and the premise is really great here, but to me, it wasn't executed all that well. Like cinematically, I wasn't very enthralled with it. I didn't feel much suspense. It, it just like wasn't shot or edited in a way that did it any favors to me. Mm, yeah, like the the setting and the lighting and everything. 
Yeah, and just like the timing and pacing of it all. Like he just kind of walks into the bathroom, gets stabbed, and then he. I guess there was a little bit of suspense where you know that is not Phil sitting next to Maureen. Right. Um, but I don't know. Other than that, it just kind of like did its job and was out of there. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, more efficient than like a, a suspense build, especially if you're comparing it to the f- opening of the first one. Like that's like peak gold. Like you can't top that at all. Right. Um, right. It, it's hard to compare and unfair really to compare to that one. Um, yeah. Yeah. It really is. And this also started with a little bit more meta commentary on movies. Jada Pinkett is really laying into the whiteness of horror movies. Um, which is especially poignant because she's basically the first black final girl from Team and Night, as we discussed in that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also thought it was kind of a bummer that they called that out about horror movies and then didn't really do anything uh, <laughs> to to get over any of those tropes. So like, it still followed the same tropes, which, I don't know, maybe that was the plan. Like, we're satiring even the movie that we're writing right now, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a little disappointing that they're just like commenting on on how black people always die first and then going and then, ahead and dying first. And then falling to that. Yeah, yeah. But then yeah. also throughout the film, I, I think you have a lot more minorities in, in this movie than uh, obviously like, yeah, part one didn't have any, I don't think. That's true. It's, yeah, like, you do. You do. But I think they're yeah. still a little bit stereotypical. Yeah. And then killing them off first, which I couldn't tell if that was like smart or not. Like you, you mentioned this trope and then you kind of deliver on it in a way. Right, right. So is it the next level where you're mentioning it and you've got to do it too? Or is it like, hey, we did the thing by mentioning it and oh yeah, we forgot. <laughs> we kind of killed them off anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- this genre seems to be about like, p- for the most part, playing to like the expectations and making fun of them and then delivering a slight twist on it. But um, yeah, I, I, that's a really good point. And then w- did you think uh, the commentary, because right, right off the w- with this first scene, I feel like they're making a comment about like the culture around violence in films and like, you know, showing the crowd here, like going wild with like the stabbing motions and all wearing the mask to the extent where they're blinded to uh, a murder happening right in front of them. Did you feel like there was like some commentary here? Hmm. I don't know. I do feel like the movie has something to say about violence in film and whether we think that that gets mimicked in real life or how we deal with violence in general as a culture. Um, I didn't know if this scene was commenting on it or not. Okay. I mean, just like that, that theater scene just seemed uh, way more extreme than any theater I've been in, in terms of... Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fandom. I want to go to those types of openings where <laughs> yeah. the theater, like, builds a giant uh, ghost face arm that hangs out into the street with a fake knife in its hand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. We live in the wrong towns. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um. So after this opening scene, we transition to Windsor College, where we meet up with our old pal Randy, the movie nerd from the first film, and he's engaged in a meta debate with his film class about sequels. He says things like the entire horror genre was destroyed by sequels, sequels sucks, they have a whole convo about what sequels were better than the original, Aliens and Terminator 2 come up, uh... We also meet a character who's a part of Randy and Sid's friend group at college named Mickey, who's also a film student. And the scene kind of wraps up when he mentions The Godfather Part 2, and even Randy has to give pause and concede that maybe he lost the argument with that one. Um, Which is, again, kind of meta, and talking about the pressure of writing a sequel to 
a movie that was very successful and that they probably can't do any better. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I like that. It's kind of like uh, they're calling out like what they're up against, basically. Right, exactly. And it's still, it's a good way to be meta and also keep Randy in a similar role that he was in the first film and reintroduce you to him and the role he plays in these movies. Right. And as Randy exits class, Sid meets up with him and they discuss what happened to that couple at the stab premiere last night. Meanwhile, Derek, Sid's new boyfriend, climbs up onto the veranda of the building that they're on and then we're introduced to him. And did you think maybe that the climbing of him, his climbing of the veranda was meant to mimic Billy climbing into Sid's window in the first one? I think so. Yeah. I, I felt like a, a lot of times uh, they had characters act in ways that tied them to characters from part one. But yeah, this right. definitely felt like a Billy Loomis reference. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they do th- some things throughout with the camera work and the audio that they really point you to the possibility of Derek being the villain. Right. Throughout their movie. Um, so the press descends on the school after hearing the news of last night's murders. Uh, and included in this flood of visitors to the school are Gerald Weathers to report on the murders, Dewey to check on Sid and make sure she's okay, and a new character who introduces herself to Gail Weathers as a huge fan, who also happens to be a local news reporter named Debbie Salt. Um, and Gail surprises Sydney, kind of ambushes Sydney when she approaches her with Cotton Weary and a camera. Cotton's been newly exonerated and Gail attempts to stage a discussion between the two of them. The first discussion they've ever had since the trial. Um, and Sid never agreed to it. So Gail gets another slap in the face, just like the good old days. And they attempt to show here that Cotton is really in a position where he's looking to gain fame and money from this strange fate of his and the situation that he's in where even though he's free, he was still in prison for a year and had his name dragged through the mud. So Ashwin, what did you think of how we were reintroduced to all the characters from the last film here? Did it feel like they were checking boxes or did it feel like it was successfully woven into the plot? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, it, it did kind of feel very routine in a way. Like it, it, everyone's kind of like right where they left off. I mean, Nev, uh, or like, yeah, uh, Sydney's had some, uh, growth where it seems like she's like moved past it for the most part and is kind of like in a position where she can confront people who are pranking her. But uh, yeah, Dewey also, I, I guess, had kind of moved on. And um, yeah, I, I felt like in a way it was, was kind of cool to see them all reuniting. And it felt like they'd kind of like uh, come out of this massacre and had that now bond together. And then Cotton coming into the picture was kind of like this foreign element that still like it provides like some kind of like friction or stress. So it felt more of like a continuity uh, and, and felt pretty natural. What, what did you think? Yeah, I think it felt pretty natural as well. I couldn't try tell if they were trying to do a fourth wall type breaking thing, but Randy was introducing everyone like once oh. they like returned and was like, ah, Dewey, the big brother figure. And it was <laughs> a little hokey. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was like a point where like he's kind of narrating in a way. And, and you could tell like, I think he was doing it for like the benefit of like the, the new characters, like the, the boyfriend or something. But yeah, it was kind of like a cheap way for anyone who forgot, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. He was narrating it for the new characters, so I couldn't tell if I was pleased by that meta-ness or, or if it just it felt a little <laughs> hokey to me. Yeah, a little annoying. I hear you. Uh, I also really like there's a scene here where Dewey's just ripping into Gail, who's written a book about the murders that the movie Stab is based on, and she 
kind of insults Dewey quite a few times in the book, and he's like memorized the page numbers where it happened. He's <laughs> not happy. Yeah, that was, that was a good speech. Uh, I, I like that he, he ripped her apart. Do you you like his character, Randy? Uh, no, oh, Dewey. Dewey. I I yeah. do. I really like Dewey. Really, you're not he, a fan? Nah, he's he's kind of. I don't know. I. I think he's kind of uh, kind of an idiot, but I, I guess he's supposed to be like a lovable idiot or something. Yeah, yeah, that's his role—a lovable oaf. Yeah, but I mean, he's then he's also a cop. And was he a cop in this one, or just like a guy who showed up to help? Um, still a cop. Still a cop. Okay. Yeah. You sure? Um, I think, but yeah, he never really like radios in. I think he's out of his jurisdiction, is why. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, that night we meet a sorority sister on campus named Cece, played by Sarah Michelle Geller, who's staying home as the sorority's designated driver for the night. And she gets a call from Ghostface, very reminiscent of the phone call from the opening scene of the original Scream. And there's a sequence here where she's being chased by Ghostface. She goes outside and is trying to call campus security, but the landline phone won't work when she's out there. So she has to come back into the house and he eventually catches her, stabs her a few times and throws her off a balcony. I thought this was actually a pretty tense sequence and I liked the uh, the bit of her trying to go outside but then she couldn't call campus security because her landline phone was too far from the docking station. What did you think of this scene, Ashwin? Yeah, and no, I felt the same. And, and you saw Ghostface come in behind her, right? When she was like talking to her friend. Right, so this is the point of the movie where you know it would it's going to be two people again. Oh, um, oh, right. Oh, I, I didn't put that together there. I, I yeah, because she's, maybe you were referring to a different moment, but she is talking on the phone to Ghostface, and you see Ghostface in the background without a phone to his ear. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, very perceptive. That makes sense. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I, I, I like this one, too. This is this felt, like, very cool. Uh, th- back to the norm uh, of, of, like, Scream 1 and, like, the, the stalking in a house. And uh, I feel like Ghostface, again, like, you see, like, how clumsy he is. Like, she throws, like, a plant at him, a bike at him on the stairs, and he's just, like, tripping over all this stuff. So yeah, you love Ghostface fun. being clumsy. Yeah, I mean, isn't that like a, a main part of his, this character in, in this franchise? Is just like <laughs> this very kind clumsy of kind of goof? Yeah, I mean, he stands out from other iconic serial killers for that reason. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> if you remove the moment from Friday the 13th Part 2 where Jason tries to stand on a chair. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's got that one gap. <laughs> I'll never live it down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, after this scene, we catch up with Sid and her new friend, Hallie, at a sorority party. Randy pops into their conversation with drinks in hand and says, cocktail? And they reply, what took you so long? And I think this is a way to plant in our mind that it could have been Randy that we just saw kill Sarah Michelle Geller in the last scene. He was gone longer than they expected. Mm-hmm. After the party here dies down, Sid gets attacked by Ghostface. But her new boyfriend, Derek, comes on the scene and scares him away, but suffers a stab to the arm in the scuffle. But we never see the stab happen, and some of the characters start to think it's a bit suspicious that the killer only grazed his arm and ran away. We also get a moment here where the camera and the score really tries to make us think Derek is the killer. We get a close-up of him with ominous music playing as he's got a blank, possibly slightly menacing expression on his face. Right. And as the press descends on this scene, we also see that Debbie Salt, this new reporter, local, is already on the scene when Gail arrives. And she says, Gail, you're just getting here? Which puts the idea in our heads that Gail maybe took long to get there for a reason or that it's weirdly convenient that Debbie Salt is there so quickly. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, my mind definitely went to Gail getting there late. But yeah, good point. 
So not only does this scene put a lot more questions in your head about who could be the killer, but I think the most valuable takeaway for me in this whole sequence here was seeing the look on Sid's face once she sees Derek lying there wounded. Like that's when it really starts to sink in on a dramatic level that she's going through this all over again. She loves this guy. She said that he's hurt, but she's also in this weird position where she doesn't know if she can trust him. It could be another Billy Loomis situation all over again. Yeah, I, I, I sense that in her, in her the way she looked at it. I, I thought it was more like uh, I'm hurting the people that are important to me in my life uh, because of their relationship to me. And this yeah. thing. But you think she was also suspicious of him at this point? I think so. I, it was hard to tell if she was, and I don't even know if she knew if she was or not. <laughs> uh, are we talking about Nev Campbell's acting in this? <laughs> no, no. I think she's great in this. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, but I, I think know. she's got to play. Th- she's been through so much that, like, I think she might also be wrestling with, like, I don't trust this guy, but like, no, this isn't like with Billy. I do trust this guy, so I think there might be some inner turmoil there. Okay, sure. But you don't think she's a, a good performer in this movie? Uh, I just feel like she kind of like uh, has that look about her a lot. Uh, maybe like this point onwards, where it's just you know squinting a lot and uh, putting up like a very tough face and like kind of being emotionally distant from everyone which i i guess yeah i mean I, if, if you tie it's like what happened to her in part one it's it's easy to understand so maybe that's why it's hard to get too much variation here right and i mean she's definitely got a squint and a nostril flare in her acting toolbox yeah but i still think she had a good performance in this one and this movie doesn't really play up her drama quite as much as the other one did Oh, sure. Like the background, like family drama. Right, right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, this one definitely feels like more of a mystery than the first one, like we said. And I think it's smart because otherwise it could hit too many of the same beats from the first one. Yep. Um, and here, somewhere in the mix here, we get the worst scene in the movie where Derek sings, Hey, I love you to Sid. <laughs> um, and there's also a scene that this was an example where I thought it was a good performance. It was a scene that could have been really hokey, but I think was saved by Nev's acting. Her theater professor is trying to convince her to stay in the play despite the events unfolding with Ghostface and the murders. And he asks her to repeat multiple times the phrase, I'm a fighter, Mm -hmm. which is super hokey, but she, I feel like she knew how to play it and she made it work. It, It wasn't over the top. She just delivered it kind of straightforward and subdued. And I think like Wes Craven was kind of easy on the drama in terms of the score and, and the way this was filmed that I think that was a moment that could have really flopped and been hokey if she wasn't as good of a performer. And in fact, she won the MTV movie award that year for best female performance. Wow. For this film. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I, I agree. This could have been a really cheesy uh, sequence, but it, it, it felt okay. Yeah, good. Um, meanwhile, Gail, Dewey, and Randy have been trying to put their heads together to determine who it is that could be doing the killings this time, and they reason that it's most likely someone Sid knows. They're out on the quad, and Randy gets a call on his cell phone from the killer who makes it clear that he can see them. So Dewey, Gail, and Randy are here. They know he can see them. They're running around examining everyone within their eyeline who is talking on a cell phone. They even tackle a guy. Um, 
And this scene concludes with Randy being dragged into Gail's camera van by Ghostface and slaughtered. And he's discovered shortly after by Gail and Dewey. And Ashvin, I'm a bit of a Randy fan, so it hurt to see him go. But what did you think? Uh, I felt the same way. He felt like really instrumental to the franchise up until now. And like the fact that they kept him in. And then uh, he was always like kind of like uh, the voice of like calling out like the tropes or like what is going to happen, what's supposed to happen. So it, it felt it felt like a big loss to lose him here. And then uh, also the way he was killed, um, I don't think we got enough. Like it, it wasn't like, you know, he's like walking around in like broad daylight and then just like pulled into a van and quickly murdered. Uh, I feel like they could have dragged it out or made it a little more suspenseful. But w- what about you? I agree. I agree. I feel like in the past we've talked about a concept of a little bit of like honor in a character's death. Like a beloved character shouldn't die quickly. <laughs> like yeah. it sounds it sounds morbid and that it should be the reverse, but you need to see a fight when it's a character you love. Like and exactly. it, it needs to have enough respect given to it and Randy is kind of just discarded like trash. So I think it was hard to see him go. And it, it would have been hard to see anybody who was around in the first film go, but um, yeah, yeah, this was hard to watch. And I think yeah. fans were upset by this. Oh, okay, okay. I also thought it was kind of a clever scenario and that they knew the killer could see them and really playing on the commonality of cell phones that was ever increasing at that time. And <laughs> they knew that it was someone who could see them, so they could probably see him and he'd be talking on a phone. It was kind of clever. There were a lot more cell phones than I thought there would have been at that time. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. You know what? You're right, man. Because I had a cell phone. My first cell phone was when I was 16. So that would have been like 1999. And it was like a brick that I was only supposed to use in emergencies. So it's hard to believe that two years earlier, there would be that many cell phones on a college campus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was surprising. Yeah. Um... This is followed by a similar scenario where Sid's in a library and gets a DM um, from Ghostface, and it can only be someone in the library because it's a closed network. And then we see Cotton walk onto the scene, and they have some dialogue here that establishes he's really easy to get paid, and he mentions that he's got something on the side with a 900 number. Did you notice that line? No. Oh. I didn't know if that meant he had like a 900 number that people could call to talk to him. And pay to talk to him? Yeah, like I kind of viewed this as a commentary on the killer being a celebrity. And even a celebrity that like women may desire. Or men. Wow, interesting. I don't know though. I, I, I didn't know what to make of that line. Yeah, yeah, that's random. But yeah. I, I think he's just like the sleazy guy trying to make money in, in any way he can. Yeah, they're really playing him. It's just like trying, trying like hell to, to get any gain that he can out of this scenario he's in. Right. That evening, Dewey and Gale are at the college audiovisual building trying to find a VCR to review a videotape they found of Randy's murder. And it's revealed that Ghostface is in the building stalking them. We get a sequence where Dewey is stabbed repeatedly while Gale watches through soundproof glass. Um, and then... You've got another scene happening simultaneously where Sydney is being driven with her friend Haley to, or Hallie, I think, to a safe place by two police officers. But at a stoplight, Ghostface smashes through a window, kills one of the cops. He gets in the car and starts driving it, hits the other cop with the car, and drives around with him on the hood until he impales him with some piping at a construction site. And this is, I think, a really cool setup here because now Hallie 
and Sid are in the back. The only way they can get out is in the front to climb over an unconscious ghost face. And Sid has the added temptation of like, she wants to get through and not wake him up, but she also wants to take his mask off to see who it is. What did you think about that sequence? This is one of my favorite sequences in the movie. It's so uh, so intense. I agree. Trying to crawl over a murderer. It's wild. It's Yeah, super intense, just inherently. And it was played well. And we also see as viewers that the cop's gun is laying on the hood. So it kind of makes it extra frustrating as a viewer too, because you know Sid could grab that gun, but she doesn't know it's there. Oh, oh, I didn't even put that together. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Uh, Sid escapes, but Hallie gets stabbed and killed. Um, another black character down. And Sid runs into the college theater building, of course, where Dewey and... No, it's a theater building. It's a separate building. Um, where someone has just cued the music on the stage of the play that Sid will be starring in. And here she finds Derek tied to like a cross or something, which... From an earlier scene, we assume to be part of a hazing ritual from his fraternity. And here we get the final confrontation with Ghostface. He takes off his masks and reveals that it's Mickey. Do you remember if you knew it was Mickey at this time the first time around? Or did you remember from your first viewing that it was him? I don't know. I don't think I ever guessed uh, correctly who, who it was. Did, did you guess? I finally guessed once we f- realized that there was footage of Randy's death and some additional footage that they had found because he was a film student and mentioned trying to make a documentary oh yeah wow good point yep um makes sense so yeah he reveals that his plan is to kill sid and plead insanity and blame the movies he says he'll get johnny cochran or alan dershowitz as his lawyer and says these days it's all about the trial which was some commentary on celebrity murderers um that was a common thing at the time, like with OJ and everything. And also the inherent celebrity that seems to come with being a murderer, the way the news coverage coverage goes. Then yeah. He introduces, and, Oh, go ahead. Oh, the, I think he name drops like uh, Jeffrey Dahmer at some point too. But yeah, just kind of like this fascination with serial killers. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a disturbing element of society. And I think we've tried to get better about that and the media's tried to get better about it, but the people who commit these crimes become like celebrities. Yeah. Um, I, I thought we were getting worse about it. Like now you're getting like all these, uh, Netflix shows about like how to become a serial killer, like, uh, shows that like follow the life of a serial killer. I think entertainment has gotten worse about it and we've become very fascinated by true crime. Yeah. But like school shooters and, um, other shooters like that and, I don't know, people who commit heinous crimes, their names, maybe it's just my perception of the news lately, but it doesn't seem like their names are dropped as often as they used to in the past. Oh, yeah. The event itself and the tragedy is reported on, but they don't elevate this person to celebrity status like they used to. That's true. You know what, listeners? Let us know what you think about that. Do you think that's getting better or is it getting worse? I, I don't know. But anyway, he also introduces Debbie Salt as his accomplice. This is that local news reporter. And Sid recognizes her as Billy's mom, Billy Loomis's mom. And she's just in it to avenge her dead son. And she ends up killing Mickey. She was just using Mickey as someone to pin the blame on. And she shoots Mickey. As he's going down, he shoots Gail Weathers. And now it's time for the showdown between Sid and Mrs. Loomis. 
And what did you think of a good chunk of this showdown just being like fake rocks <laughs> from the scenery of the play falling onto Mrs. Loomis? Yeah, uh, I I wasn't bought into the setting at all. Like, uh, you're under attack. You ran into like a theater, and now you're using like the props of the theater to fight off this uh, your, your attacker. Uh, it just felt like very forced. What, what did you yeah. think? Yeah, yeah, I agree. It was poorly written. This was a bad idea for a place to do. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a commentary as well, right? On uh, theater, the performatory nature of of these murders and trying to gain celebrity by it. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. There could be some commentary there. Yeah. I think it could have worked out had they not really like incorporated everything in the theater as a weapon. <laughs> I know. She's like making the thunder noises. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like why? Yeah. <laughs> this isn't a stage reduction. It, it was pretty silly to me. Um, hey, uh, jumping back to, to Mickey. Uh, did you feel like he was channeling Stuart at all from part one? I thought he was, I actually thought like he was trying too hard to be Billy. It, it was, I think, by Timothy Oliphant, a, a not a very good performance. Mm. Yeah, He was yeah. hard to believe. Not hard to believe as a villain, but it was just like you could see right through it. It did seem like he was trying to echo the performances from the first film. It just felt like uninspired acting to me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but Cotton shows up. He shoots Mrs. Loomis. Uh, we get a he's not dead yet moment where Mickey comes back and they shoot him dead. And just to be sure, Sid puts a bullet right through Mrs. Loomis's brain and says, just in case. <laughs> and then when they emerge from this scene, it's morning. All these reporters uh, jump onto Sid and they say, Sid, how does it feel to be a hero? And she says, talk to Cotton. He's the hero. So <laughs> Cotton kind of gets this moment where he finally get some redemption out of his false imprisonment for a year and Sydney also doesn't have to be the center of media attention again and there's a scene of her triumphantly walking away while happy music is playing even though she's completely and utterly alone and all her friends keep dying <laughs> we also get a reveal that Dewey's alive after all wait what we, what the, who, that who's alive oh oh yeah right right he gets uh carried out in a stretcher right yeah 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 his scar tissue saved him right <laughs> what did you think of the ending oh yeah i mean I, yeah I, I hated that uh last uh sequence and then uh when it's revealed who the killers are a lot of over explanation which I, I know in the first one too they 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 go into like why they did it and the rationale but this one it's kind of like, oh, and this is how we're going to get away with it. And like, uh, it kind of like drags on a little bit too long uh, and longer than it needed to. And then obviously the whole like uh, scene on where it's like the setting of, of where it was taking place uh, didn't make any sense to me at all. So I, I wasn't a huge fan uh, of this. What, what did you think? I kind of agree. I, I didn't really like the performances here very well. Um, and... Yeah, the setting could have been fine, but it didn't work out that great in the end. I liked who it was and what their rationales were, but I could hear your complaint that it was maybe over-explained. Um, yeah, I thought the ending was just just fine. I, I liked the ups and downs of it all and the new characters coming onto the scene, um, but I didn't think it was played up that well. Sure, it could have been executed a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, um, 
Go I, ahead. I agree. Though. I, I think having the mother be the villain, I, I thought that was a cool add in. Like, kind of, we've seen that in other horror films. So that was kind of neat. Yeah, that was kind of fun. Um, and, you know, talking about Timothy Oliphant uh, not having a great performance here, that leads to a general complaint I have with this movie. The new characters aren't very good. They're, they're nowhere near as good as the characters in the first film. Yeah. I don't think the characters are written as well. I don't think the performances are as good. They're just not as memorable. Well, the new characters, are you talking about like her roommates and like those two sorority girls and like the the new boyfriend and all that stuff? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we, we barely get any of them there and they're very like one dimensional compared to like the first one, which I, I think they were just like a lot more fleshed out. Yeah, and it's funny because part of me was about to be like, well, you had to like focus your time on the characters from the old one in this, but the last movie did that. You know, there were just as many characters in the last movie. Yeah, right, right. And they were more successful with it. I think that largely is uh, the performances too. Performances, yeah. That makes sense. Um, Yeah, this one, I I think they just try to shove like a big cast onto, onto the screen here without like too much character. They're in the way of like building their characters. Yeah, I agree. I will say, even though, like we said, the opening of this movie cannot stack up to the first one, the ending to me didn't stack up to the first one. Mm-hmm. I would say that the second act of Scream 2 was better than the second act of Scream. Yeah. Do you I agree. agree. I, yeah. For me, like I felt like the first hour dragged the, the, the second half between the, the car sequence uh, and then also when they're in the sound studio or like in, in that uh, building where... Gail is like behind like the sound glass and watching Dewey get stabbed. I thought both of those like pretty cool uh, kills and like uh, much bigger productions than we've seen in like part one. Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, like the car, the whole car chase was definitely like a bigger scene than anything we'd seen in part one. Um, Yeah. Although there is some, some car drama in the first one, but I thought there were multiple clever setups. And even though uh, Randy's death felt a little bit cheap, I did really like the setup of he's calling and we don't know where he is. Um, I, I thought the second act had a lot of moments that were just really well, well-made movie making and genuinely suspenseful. And Sarah Michelle Skeller death even was was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, her was death wasn't good. that great, but the, the scene itself was pretty good. The the build up and like the the phone call. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, I think that the movie really needed that because that was like one of the biggest ties to, to like what works in the first one is this person at home alone getting that call. Yeah, agreed. Um, I thought that, not to rag on the performances more, <laughs> but um, Nev and Jerry O'Connell had just like no chemistry on screen. Did you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. But that, 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 that can't, I can't tell. I mean, yeah, I, I hate Jerry O'Connell. Is that his name? I think that's his name, right? Jerry O'Connell? Jerry Connell, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I hate that actor. I mean, like, he, he's terrible. But then I also thought like Nev Campbell was kind of a uh, stone cold uh but I, I know like that was kind of her character is to be someone who is uh you know guarded so i i, I couldn't tell like uh whose fault to put to put that on but i agree that the chemistry wasn't there and like the whole i i think that just made that scene where you're talking about where he jumped on the table and sang the song even more like confusing yeah even more painful yeah <laughs> exactly whereas her um, and billy for them from the first one like they had kind of a messed up relationship and he was a creepy dude, but they did have their own weird brand of chemistry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They seem to fit together a lot better. Yeah. Um, I, and I, you know, I, I want to say the same about, uh, Dewey and Gail. Like, uh, I, I don't get their chemistry and I, I feel like that love story was kind of like a, a storyline in this film. Are you, are you like a fan of that one? 
I am a fan of that storyline. I I like their chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it makes sense. Gail, Gail can be like such a jerk in so many aspects of her life, but Dewey is just so painfully sincere and authentic, even though he's dopey, that she just can't help like having a soft spot for him. I think she's almost he's almost like a kryptonite type thing for her. She's he's just such the polar opposite of her. That just that foggles me that she would be into that. Uh, and then the one thing that also really bothered me about their chemistry is every time they were together, there this guitar line would play. Uh, it's almost like <laughs> I didn't old, notice that. Oh, you, you noticed that, right? No, I didn't. Oh God, it was, it was like the cheesiest guitar line. It's like kind of an old like reverb westerny kind of like thing, and I it just it was such a weird vibe. I didn't, I didn't get it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, I didn't notice that. I'll have to pay attention to that next time. Do you feel like Dewey should have died, though? No, no. I want everybody from the first one to stay alive. <laughs> but, okay, if, if you had to pick one of them to stay alive, like, w- would you rather uh, he would have died or the other dude? You know, I'm glad it was Randy because Randy was, as much as I like his character, he kind of became a caricature of himself in this one. Yeah, okay. So you don't think I, I don't want him to die. I like Randy, everybody. But if somebody had to go, I guess I'd choose Randy. Yeah. Of the original characters. Yeah. I think I would have chosen Dewey. He just seems like worthless. And I don't buy that Gil would be into him, but I, I guess. She's happens. into him in real life. Oh, yeah. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> um, we forgot to mention Robert Rodriguez directed some of the scenes from the fictional Stab movie. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's cool. Yeah. I, I um, loved the all, all the times they would like reference a stab movie or show a clip of it. Those those are pretty good. Yeah, the the fictional movie stab was woven into the movie really well. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a cool backdrop. And I thought the Who Done It. I mean, I was I was still guessing a lot in this one, and and that's kind of the point. They really make you believe anybody could do it. But that was a really fun aspect of this movie. I thought. Yeah, and they really dialed that up this time. Like uh, almost every interaction, like the one of the key purposes was to just confuse you more in terms of like who's the actual killer here. And I think they do a good job of like keeping that uh, mystery till the end. Yeah, they did. But then, uh, like you saying that, like so many scenes were just meant as a misdirection. Yeah, that's true. But they also wove it in well enough that it didn't feel like the movie was bending over backwards. Like the plot still flowed well. They they worked it in there. Yeah, like uh, once you well. found out who, like you could go back and like see. Oh, like that's like it, it made sense. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like they were dedicating tons and tons of screen time to it or plot time to it, but right. it was there. They made sure to pepper that in. Right, right. Kept yeah. they kept it efficient. They did. Yeah. Did you feel like the time though? Like I think this movie was two hours. Did it drag it all for you? I actually thought it, it flew by fairly well. Um, it only dragged during the Jerry O'Connell, mu- Jerry O'Connell musical number. <laughs> but did yeah, you feel yeah. that way? Did you feel the pacing was a little off for a while? I, I did feel like the first half was like pretty slow. Like you had those two kills, you had Cece get killed, and then the uh, the, the the one Randy getting killed, uh, which um, that was like kind of spread across like one hour. And then, but then the second act, yeah, the momentum picked up and it got a little more fun. Yeah. Um. All right, man. Well, zero to five ominous shots of an innocent character. What do you give this movie? Uh, wait, zero to five shots of, an, of, of what? An ominous character? Ominous shots of an innocent character. 
ominous shots of an innocent character. Uh, three and a half ominous shots of an innocent character. I, I liked it, man. It a, a lot of fun to watch. Didn't have like the same kind of scares, originality, or thrill that the original Scream did. But yeah, the whodunit uh, made it a lot of fun. And uh, some of the... Uh, yeah, it was great to see these characters back on screen and uh, loved, loved the uh, so, so some of the sequences towards the end. What about you? All right, I'm going to give it... A, you're on a 3.5 streak lately. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it feels like a safe rating sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, like this isn't going to piss anyone off. <laughs> <laughs> you ever just feel like life is at a 3.5 and you start giving everything a 3.5? <laughs> uh, I give it a 4. Oh, nice. I actually had a lot of fun with it. Yes, I wasn't wild about the opening, but it, it was certainly good. And yeah, the end had its flaws, but I was pretty enthralled i thought the second act was solid and there was a lot of suspense in this movie and the murder mystery was fun so i had a great time four out of five i'm looking forward to watching the next one in the next few months here awesome great cool anything else uh that's all i got all right well uh that's it for our episode on scream 2 everybody we hope you enjoyed it if you did, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find our show. We really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to connect with us, go to horrormovieclub.com. Click on the social links drop-down. You'll find links to Facebook and Twitter. That's where we announce what we're going to cover next week. You'll also find a link for our Discord server, which is a great place to hang out with other horror movie fans and listeners to the show. If you don't have any friends in person that you can talk about horror movies with, our Discord server has you covered. Um, let's see, what else? We've got a Patreon. We've got some bonus episodes out there. If you want to subscribe for a buck a month for as long as you choose, you can listen to that bonus content and help us pay off the cost of the show. That's patreon.com slash horrormovieclub. There's also a link to Patreon on horrormovieclub.com. Uh, on our Twitter page, the pinned post on our profile is a link to a coaster set of some of our favorite horror movie characters and one of those five coasters is our logo those are done by amy may pop art who also does our logo you can find her at etsy.com by searching amy may pop art all one word even if you hate our show go there and check out her horror pop art and buy something awesome to decorate your house with I think that's it. So until next time, if there's a serial killer loose on your college campus, evacuate the campus. It's pretty simple. Pretty simple.